I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ajel Shang. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. Coming up, we talk with planetary scientist Matthew Beasley about space mining. It might sound like science fiction, but is it something that might actually be technologically and economically feasible? We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Bats and viruses. Bats have been in the news lately because of the coronavirus. Coronavirus originated in bats, but it is hardly the first deadly virus to do so. Bats were also the primary host for SARS, MERS, and Ebola viruses before they transmitted them to other mammals and eventually to us. A UC Berkeley study looked at bats to better understand why they host so many deadly viruses. Bats are unique in many ways. First, they are the only truly flying mammal. Their ability to fly moves the virus long distances. Second, the bat has an excellent immune system. This is key. Their immune systems, primed for defense, respond swiftly to wall the virus out of their cells. The virus, in turn, responds by reproducing more quickly to try and outmaneuver the cell's defense. A battle is set up between the bat's immune system and the rapidly reproducing virus. Third, bats have a surprisingly long lifespan. Some bat species can live up to 40 years. A rodent of the same size lives only a few years. We know that smaller animals with faster heart rates and metabolism usually have shorter lifespans. Larger animals, like us, with slower heartbeats and metabolism tend to live a lot longer. So high metabolic rates mean more tissue damage, and that reduces your lifespan. So do bats have slower metabolism and heart rates that explain their long lifespans? Actually, not at all. When bats are flying, their metabolic rates are double that of a similarly sized rodent when running. The reason bats live long, despite their fast metabolism, is that they are very good at clearing out those destructive molecules from metabolism. In summary, bats have two features making them a unique reservoir of rapidly reproducing viruses. They can tolerate a high viral load and also have long lifespans. Although we are also mammals, the human immune system does not have this antiviral strategy. Bat viruses may be transmitted directly to humans or transmitted via another animal. For example, MERS came to us via camels from bats and Ebola came to us from bats via gorillas and chimpanzees. These viruses are extremely deadly to humans, in part because we don't have the ability to mount defenses against them replicating this rapidly. If you use social media, you probably have seen the program recommend people for you to add as friends. The suggestion is based on you and the other person having common contacts, which indicates that you may know each other. In a similar manner, scientists are creating maps of biological networks based on how different proteins or genes interact with each other. The researchers behind a new study have used artificial intelligence to investigate whether it is possible to discover biological networks using artificial neural networks or deep learning computer programs trained by experimental data. 
Since computer neural networks are excellent at learning how to find patterns in enormous amounts of complex data, they are used in applications such as image recognition. However, this deep learning method has seldom been used in biological research. A science team from Linköping University in Sweden uses a large database with information about the expression patterns of about 20,000 genes in a large number of people. The information was not predefined in the sense that the researchers did not give the artificial neural network information about which gene expression patterns were from people with diseases and which were from healthy people. The artificial neural network had to work on its own to find patterns of gene expression. The neural network has several layers of calculations in ways it automatically groups the input data. When the researchers analyzed their neural network after it had crunched through the gene data, they found that the first layer tended to group data by interactions between various proteins. In a deeper layer, they found it grouped data by different cell types. In the last layer, they found it grouped gene variations that correlated to people with particular diseases. The scientists point out that it is extremely interesting that this type of biologically relevant grouping is automatically discovered by the artificial intelligence neural network, given that the network started from uncategorized gene expression data. They confirm that the model finds relevant patterns that agree well with biological mechanisms in the body. The researchers are now investigating the exciting prospect that other patterns discovered by the deep learning neural networks will identify previously unknown biological connections, such as diseases with specific gene variations and diseases in which many factors interact. They also hope that better understanding the details in the different layers of the neural network will lead to new insights about biological networks and contexts. This work was published recently in the journal Nature Communications in the article titled Deriving Disease Modules from the Compressed Transcriptional Space Embedded in a Deep Autoencoder. Seawater desalination and passive solar power. Water scarcity is a global challenge, and seawater desalination is one solution that addresses this problem. Passive solar energy for seawater desalination systems exist, but they are not very efficient for commercial systems. We all have that image from a movie about being stranded at sea and rigging some sort of still to evaporate seawater to collect a measly cup of drinking water. A bleak image because the solar-to-vapor conversion efficiency is pretty low. Commercial seawater desalination systems generally require well-developed infrastructure and large-scale facilities. They are not well-suited for developing regions. They are energy-intensive, and most of them run on fossil fuels. Researchers at MIT and Shanghai University developed a completely passive solar power desalination system that is at least two times more efficient than the best passive system out there. A prototype generates more than one and a half gallons of fresh drinking water per hour per square meter of solar collection area. This can be made with low-cost materials. 
The results are reported in the latest issue of Energy and Environmental Science. So that's pretty impressive, but how do they do this? Well, their system uses multiple layers of solar evaporators and condensers lined up in a vertical array. We know that evaporating water takes heat, and the reverse, condensation, releases heat, of course. Instead of losing that heat to the environment, as is typically done in condenser systems, the released heat flows to the next evaporating layer in the multi-layer system, and so on. This increases the conversion efficiency. The researchers analyzed the problem, and they settled on a 10-stage prototype. At each stage, condensed water is collected, and then the released thermal energy is transferred to drive the evaporation at the next stage. Using this passive system with low-cost materials would be a great help to developing countries and off-the-grid applications. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Stars have been called diamonds in the sky, but there are other valuable and more accessible resources up there. Asteroids might be the next gold rush, though for perhaps resources other than gold, if there are ways to actually get there and mine them. Can we do it? And even if we can, does it make economic and environmental sense to do it? With us today to talk about space mining is Dr. Matthew Beasley, a senior program manager at Southwest Research Institute, where I also work. He is a graduate from the University of Colorado and a real rocket scientist. Welcome to How on Earth, Matt. Thank you. Glad so, to be here. So, um... Tell me first, before we dive in, before working at Southwest Research Institute, you worked for a company called Planetary Resources. So what is that? Planetary Resources was a company that was started up with the uh, mission of figuring out how to extract resources from asteroids and basically be able to drive an economic engine based entirely on off-Earth resource mining. So it really is space mining. That science fiction term actually is something people have been thinking about. We thought about it for quite a while. So what is space mining? Can you define? I'm sure people have a lot of ideas of what they've read in science fiction. So space mining uh, would be the collection of valuable resources, uh, be it uh, things like water, um, platinum group elements, or potentially base metals like iron and cobalt uh, from either the moon or near-Earth asteroids. You mention a number of different elements that people would think of, but water. Uh, space mining for water seems like an odd thing to do. The Earth is covered with water. Why go to space, and what use would water be there? So the the issue you rapidly run into with anything you do in space is that you have to launch it into space. And, you know, a, a brick made out of gold 
a brick or just an equivalent amount of water all cost about the same by the time you've hauled it all the way up out of Earth's gravity well because the rockets are expensive. So it's just mass is money. Mass is money. <laughs> and so water is valuable. Well, you can you can make a statement that probably anything you haul to high Earth orbits at least $4,000 a kilogram if the most rosy expectations of SpaceX are ever finally realized. $4,000 to just launch a one kilogram brick into space. Yes. So you're saying that it's economically better. It may be economically viable to acquire water in space and never have to haul it out of Earth's gravity well. Even though you don't see oceans out in space. Even though you don't. Now, the NASA mission OSIRIS-REx is currently in an asteroid called Bennu. Bennu is probably something like 15 to 20 percent water by mass. Now, when we think of water, it's not liquid. It's it's more like... Um, You're not going to dip in a cup. You would not dip in a cup. If you look at pictures of Bennu, it looks like blocks of, of, of rock. That rock <laughs> is actually about the same consistency as a Cheeto, and it's more like a, a slightly dry clay. And so if you bake clay, you can drive out water. Ah, so there are methods you could pull this water out of the asteroid. So not only do you have to get up there, you have to extract the water that way. Is water the primary thing people are looking at right now? Planetary resources was based on the idea that there was going to be a large space economy. Water is an outstanding resource because it's usable as rocket fuel. Um, you can crack it into hydrogen and oxygen for you know very efficient rockets. You can use it as an industrial solvent. Humans need oxygen to breathe. Yeah. You can convert it to oxygen. Um, as well as it makes an excellent radiation shield. It's just about one of the best ones out there, uh, for particularly for small light particles. And uh, it has a great advantage that it requires uh, the processing. It's not particularly high temperature. And, well, it's water. It's, it's pretty safe to maneuver. It's safe to use. It had a lot going for it. Yeah, so it's not in its natural state. It's not explosive. It, if you just have a pug bucket of water, it doesn't tend to blow up or dissolve its bucket. <laughs> okay. Well, that's always a good thing. So what kind of targets you had mentioned asteroids why asteroids we thought and i would say maintain for water resources i think asteroids are a superior ore body if you want to think about it in mining terms uh to compare to the moon the moon's mostly very dry the apollo missions demonstrated that the vast majority of the moon's extremely dry much drier than anything on the earth there may be water in the shadowed craters that might be true as a person who would uh, advocate the colonization of space i think water on the moon should be used on the moon but you know, uh, opinions Keep differ. Keep the resources local. Exactly. Uh, asteroids have the great advantage that they're just floating around out there. Uh, they're small, so there's no, you know, when you want to land on the moon, you need a rocket to land on the moon. When you arrive at an asteroid, harsh language might actually eject you back into space. So <laughs> the gravity is so weak, so it really changes a lot of your dynamics of how your mining operation would work. And that was going to be a better option. And even a modest-sized asteroid has enough water to run a pretty substantial economy for the foreseeable future. So when you say water runs an economy, in what way, how would it run it? Well, you would be an example. Uh, right now, geosynchronous satellites use thrusters to maintain their positions. So this is where you'd get your direct TV and serious, you know, all of your various communication satellites. Um, the primary reason they get retired is they run out of station-keeping fuel. And so if you can keep a satellite going, that costs money. Mm -hmm. Now, if I could refuel satellites, 
that's an excellent place to get money from the earth for water and space next generation stuff would be people who want to start uh one of the statements we always would make is a fully fueled space shuttle that started in orbit can go anywhere in the solar system so it's all that fuel just getting out of the earth's gravitational well that's the big cost that's the big cost and it's just as energetically unfavorable to go from low earth orbit where the space station is all the way up where the geosynchronous satellites are so once you're in low earth orbit you're halfway to everywhere else <laughs> in a way asteroids are the gas stations uh, that you may take advantage of there. yes they're, the, they're the, you're not going to drive home and fill up and then go on the trip and then drive home when you need to get another one and go on the trip again exactly and that way you fundamentally change how you would operate you know, large space missions. If you could, knew you could fuel up in space, I mean, you can look at SpaceX's Starship uh, videos, where the entire premise is that they can refuel in space. Now, they're bringing the, all their fuel up from the Earth, but it does gen generally uh, demonstrate the viability of how powerful in-space refueling would be. How can you convert water into hydrogen and oxygen in space? How is that done, and how difficult is it to do in space versus here? Uh, on the Earth, you mostly need uh, abundant electrical power. The most traditional way is with electrolysis, where you run a current through water that has a little bit of uh, some sort of electrolytic in it. And the, what will happen is that the hydrogen and oxygen will separate onto the anode and the cathode. Um, you can collect that and potentially use that as a gas for relatively low thrust applications. Uh, that's probably fairly non-challenging. In fact, there are commercial uh, small satellite propulsion systems that use this technique. Um, but if you need to, you know, the liquid fuel, that ends up being a little bit trickier. And we never assumed that that would ever happen out near a mine, for example, just because it's, it's the, the machinery would be very complicated. Because in order to liquefy hydrogen, you have to get it to about 13 Kelvin, which is an inconveniently low temperature. And uh, there's some uh, internal processes that make uh, liquid hydrogen challenging to work with. Uh, specifically, there's a spin flip transition on the, uh, in the molecular hydrogen, which generates enough heat to boil off its own hydrogen, to boil itself, which is inconvenient. Uh, what other options then are there with water? Well, it makes like I said, great radiation shielding. If you need to, you know, if you wanted to survive your trip to Mars, it'd be awfully handy if you had a, you know, couple feet of water between you and the universe. That'd stop pretty much all your significant radiation. You can use it to breathe. And it's an industrial solvent. It's sort of not, sort of, most people wouldn't think of it in these terms necessarily, but it's the foundation for a lot of chemistry on Earth. Water, water everywhere. It really is the source of a number of useful aspects that you would want in space. Other than water, and water's great. Water's great. What are the other things you would want to go for in an asteroid other than a pile of rocks? So uh, because the asteroids have not been processed, or at least some of them haven't been processed, uh, asteroids like Bennu, I'm going to hold up that one as a specific example, is essentially fully unprocessed material left over from the birth of the solar system, which means they typically have a lot more of certain elements which are extremely rare on the Earth specifically the platinum group elements. Those are probably the only things that would ever make sense to mine extraterrestrially and bring back to the Earth are your platinum group elements. And they are factors of hundreds to thousand times more abundant on asteroids than they are anywhere on Earth. And you can probably make a case, actually, that we're already mining asteroids. Uh, for example, the Bushveld complex, where most of the platinum on Earth comes from, may be an old impact area. So that platinum was brought by an asteroid and we're just digging into it. That is one of the operant theories, yes. <laughs> it sounds like there are 
all these advantages. Why why aren't we doing it now? It ends up being challenging to uh, close the economic case, particularly when you're comparing against other startups, um, because the t- relative timeline is long. Because in order to go to an asteroid, in or, you know, when we went to Bennu, uh, that took a little over a year to get there. You have to spend a couple years there, and then it takes a bit over a year to come back, which means anytime you want to cycle and try out a technology or, you know, hey, we know we've got a mining facility that would work perfectly, it still might be seven years before you show a profit. And comparatively speaking, when you have a very new industry, for example, um, you know, the classic one was the internet, you could start seeing uh, immediate revenue. And that's very challenging when you have intrinsic timelines of circa a decade. So you need investors who are willing to be patient. Yes. And uh, it turns out typically investors are not. I know you're not an economist, but it sounds like the economics isn't quite there yet. What would it take to make it there? Um the, the key issue, I think, is that uh, space mining, so if you started mining on the moon, for example, you have a short enough timeline where you might be able to demonstrate the viability of space mining to a larger audience. The timelines aren't that different than terrestrial mines, circa 10 years before a copper mine becomes operational, circa a billion dollars of investment. However, when you look at the timing of, uh, of that, everybody believes there's going to be a demand for copper. And right now, we don't have that same demand right now that somebody, you know, I can say a kilogram of water is $20,000. The trick is actually nobody is currently willing to pay $20,000. And once the demand is there, then you can do the longer timeline investments. So you're also not a lawyer, but can you say anything about the laws of space mining? Who has rights to what asteroid? This is absolutely a fascinating topic. The Outer Space Treaty, uh, which the United States is a signatory to, says that no nation may claim a celestial object. It does not, however, and if you read the documents back when they were generating that thing, they were explicitly excluding resource acquisition. In fact, the Asteroids Act, passed more recently um, in the in the 2015 timeline, specifically states that the United States recognizes that if you extract a resource from an asteroid, you own the resource. You may not own the asteroid. But there are some non-interference components, and it's actually pretty analogous to fishing, where you're out, nobody owns the fish until you put the fish in your boat, and then they are your fish. Same sort of concept, even though you would never claim, you know, we don't own the Pacific Ocean, we could own the fish that we have extracted from the ocean. It certainly seems like there are or will be economic benefits. There aren't these legal uh, problems. It has the advantage that it takes a dirty industry off the earth. So there are a lot of advantages here, and it just may not be quite economically viable. We're we're not quite there. But yes, I I was a huge fan of the idea of transporting. Uh, Jeff Bezos says it very nicely that the earth gets rezoned residential and light industrial. (laughs) And we move all the heavy and dirty industries somewhere where it doesn't really matter. Are there any drawbacks in space mining? Well, uh, nobody's done it, so it's a little hard to say how hard it is technically. Um, it looks characteristically different than normal mining, where you have you know caterpillar bulldozers and things moving it or moving things around. But we don't actually know what it's going to look like. 
maybe microgravity will end up being the biggest advantage that space mining has to offer. Are there targets already in mind? Do people already have their plans for, I'm going to this one, I'm going to that one? We, at Planetary Resources, we had a list of targets, um, and they are pretty classically the near-Earth objects. So there's so not the ones out in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Correct. These would all be ones that are relatively uh, close energetically to the Earth, and so you don't need a very large rocket to go to them. Uh, anything out in the main asteroid belt, I would be so thrilled if we were mining Ceres. Um, Which is the largest, the asteroid, largest asteroid in the belt. And represents something like 60% of the mass of the asteroid. That'd be fantastic. Probably going to take a while to get there. Maybe Ceres somewhere down the road, but something more in our backyard now. Exactly. So just putting on your uh, your future viewing hat and looking in the crystal ball, when do you think we will actually start space mining i suspect there will be uh, at least a cottage industry of space mining potentially for explicitly uh, high value materials probably within the next 50 years um, although it will depend somewhat on the success of spacex and blue origin with their uh, reusable rockets and making access to space cheaper all right well something to look forward to i'll keep my fingers crossed that i get to see that well Thank you very much, Matt, for being on our show. Well, thank you for having me. That was Dr. Matt Beasley, planetary scientist and senior program manager at Southwest Research Institute, discussing the advantages and pitfalls and potential of mining asteroids. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Victor Lewis. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Angel Shang. 